0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What do you need to get off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, develop positive coping skills, and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/Ramdas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot slash Ramdas.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Hi, I'm Raghu Marcus and welcome to another edition of Ramdas Here and Now. And uh, we are going to listen to a talk that Ramdas gave. Gee, I'm not sure when on this one. Getting dizzy with all of our... Well, just to tell you what's going on, we are going through, and we we are looking actually for a grant. So everybody out there knows anybody who can help us, we'd love to know about it. But it's a grant for uh, the uh, digitizing uh, Ramdas's media library, not just Ramdas. It includes many of his uh, spiritual friends, writer friends, uh, etc., from Ginsberg to. Uh, Allen Ginsberg to Deepak Chopra. So, uh, we're, we're going to do this. So we're going through and we're cataloging everything and in preparation for digitizing and meta tagging and descriptions and everything so people can access through uh, search engines the, uh, exactly what content they want to access. Be it around death and dying or suffering or, uh, you know any any of the subjects that Ramdas has discussed over the years, which are many many many, so i'm a little dizzy because i've been going through that with someone today and uh, uh well every day we it it comes up it uh, it it's amazing, and I say this every time almost because I am blown away every time I come upon something I either never heard or have forgotten and how incisive on so many different subjects uh Ramdas has been, and um this one is a talk it's about Aldous Huxley, and I thought this this might be something great for people who um and you know there may be people who are not that aware of Aldous Huxley have heard of him. He died in nineteen sixty three he wrote brand new world amongst a number of books. Doors of Perception, Heaven and Hell, which were actually large articles that were put into a book. And my favorite, and what I identify him with, is called Island. And, um, you know, and I, when did I, God, I don't know. I was really young when I read. So this has to be one of the first transforming, um, Elements, and uh, I've talked about this before, from back at that time. The music was certainly one of them. Of course, uh, the the biggest one was psychedelics. Now, but before I uh, am engaged uh, with uh, mind mind altering substances, I uh, came upon this book. Now. This uh, well, there's. I came upon, upon Aldous Huxley, and um, particularly this, the first book I want to talk about is *The Doors of Perception*. I mean, at the time that I read that, and I would say I was probably around eighteen or something like that. I was feeling like a prisoner in this normal world of perceptions i was feeling caught completely in that paradigm that we understood was true reality and um so i was i felt like a prisoner i mean it's a great uh, analogy and uh, and was you know pretty unhappy so here comes Aldous Huxley a Doors of Perception, way before acid, before Leary and Alpert. Um, he imbibed in mushrooms and had a completely altered experience. And his thing before that was about exploring the mind's remote frontiers and the unmapped areas of human consciousness and this is from a tagline for uh, on the back of one of these books um, but with doors of perception it was a it, he really got into studying the effects of mind expanding drugs and this is way before anybody else was talking about it or anything was happening so he is what a real upa guru we would call him from India upa guru meaning a this a, a, not a guru as a finished realized being, but as a guru who uh who takes and crystallizes something and points the way along your path so he definitely was that and uh and he was that for Ramdas and in this talk Ramdas really expresses uh how grateful the he He was to have uh, um, met. He met all this at one time. I I don't know how many times, but I think you'll hear it in in the talk. But uh, it was a profound impact on his life. Absolutely. And especially when they started doing mushrooms. Um, Now, back to Island and back to which which I really love and I can't. Recommend it uh, more highly. It, it's uh, so. It's a book about an ideal society that was flourishing, that flourished in a in a uh, South Sea island, and that uh, society got intruded upon by a ship shipwrecked person, who uh, was he actually was going there cuz on behalf of some multinationals to get oil rights or something from this island. So these people, so he saw he saw the values that had been created by these people in this utopian world and he learned about hope. That's what I got out of this thing. When I read this book again, I was <laughs> back to the analogy of the prisoner. You know, in in the in the normal world perception, this this gave me other world perception, for sure. And but mostly what it, and and that perception was around. I, I'd only think about this now because I didn't know anything about it then. But it was a way of relating to what the Buddhists called Buddha nature, to a way of seeing what that's really like. He actually through this novel and through this narrative, you could get a feeling for what this nature pure nature pure being is like and hope was there so he he's definitely a major upa guru as they call it pointing the way all this huxley i remember um, ramdas i remember him telling some story about all this um before he died i mean literally when he he, he was days away or Maybe it wasn't that long, but at the end of his life, he was taking a lot of acid. And um, Ramdas remembers either, I guess it's either, Laura, he became very friendly with uh, Aldous' wife, uh, Laura Huxley. Ramdas did. And maybe it came through her. I can't quite remember. But he'd walk around on acid right at that cusp of being in one foot in, one foot out, even if it was months before. And he couldn't speak. All he could say was, "Extraordinary. Extraordinary. He just look around. <laughs> and he got the essence of everything. So introducing you to Aldous, Huxley, and here's Ramdas, here and now, talking about Aldous.
0: This show is sponsored by Better Help. Stop for a moment and think about something that you really need to get off your chest. It could be frustration with your job or a coworker. It could be fear or uncertainty about the future. It could be a secret that you've been hiding for years. We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest. And to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is also a great way to improve your communication skills, learn to resolve conflict, increase your self-awareness and self-esteem, develop positive coping strategies, build stronger relationships, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient Flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Ramdas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramdas
2: Gene, I am humbled and honored that you would introduce me. Gene's remarks were absolutely brilliant. Don't you agree?
1: Thank you.
2: these remarks are in honor of Aldous Huxley and also of Laura Huxley that um, in fact without Laura Huxley this lecture would not be happening and never underestimate the power of Laura Huxley. (laughs) In fact, I have to show. Laura I must show you that I am wearing the socks she she demanded that I wear higher stockings she said it was improper to wear such so I have calf stockings for Laura. (laughs) and when she asked me to speak about all this To say I was intimidated was a mild statement. My last image, or one of the images I have of Aldous, not my last one, but one of them. I'm at a party in the Hollywood Hills, and I have never met Aldous. And um, in the corner, in two chairs, chatting, are um, Gerald Hurd and Aldous Huxley. To giants of the intellect and um, I um, I'm a young um, brash Turk from Harvard recently psychedelicized <laughs> so I am now becoming one of the darlings of the Hollywood set as a connection no doubt <laughs> and um, so I sidle over at in order to listen And I hear them discussing um, the experience of walking through the labyrinths of uh, abbeys, of abbey gardens, and the feelings that it generates, and the associative tracks of these people. Uh, Aldous was two years, four years older than my father. So my relationship to Aldous is one of uh, awe and deep respect. And for me to even presume to speak about him and about his work humbles me. Humbles me. And what I've gotten from uh, readings this winter of Aldous's, some of Aldous's work. is not so much a set of answers, although there it is, they are loaded with answers, but a very um, provocative experience, forcing me to the edge of my consciousness time and again to explore the issues that he was exploring. And I can understand his saying to Gene, well, then you must do it when she was unwilling to allow the solution that all this had arrived at in Ireland. A Little while I'll discuss these books, but first, um, dealing with one of the provocative issues, and it's an issue that I think pervades these meetings, because these meetings have been full of the most beautiful possibilities for our ultimate investment experiences and dreams and programs and plans but at the same moment underlying it was the continuous question is it too late is it too dark are we just a little whisper in the roaring winds of a tornado? What do we do? Do we need to do something dramatic? The question to Ashley last night was, couldn't you go on the Bill Moyers show so millions of people could hear that what we need to do is love one another? And he said, well, Bill Moyers doesn't really want to hear that. He didn't say it that way, but that's roughly... There's not really too much room for good news. Some time ago, I was um, connected maybe 20 years ago with um, a Tibetan Lama named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He and I taught together at Naropa the first year. And in response to this question about despair, Trump has said one has to stand halfway between hope and hopelessness. If one is afraid of looking at the hopeless part, one is no longer free to act in a free way because one's anxiety about the outcome colors one's perception so deeply that one is unable to experience the gestalt out of which an appropriate response occurs. That one must look at the possibility that it all turns dark and darker and darker. I remember once being in the, uh, near the temple that I'm connected with in India, in the foothills of the Himalayas, the Kamoan hills, and visiting the ashram of a saint who had lived maybe 50, 60 years ago, Sambari Maharaj. And when one of his devotees had asked him, he said, there will come a time when you will walk five miles and you will see a light, a firelight in the distance, and you'll be so happy to know another human being still is alive. This was a man who had great, great wisdom and siddhis or powers. And that image chilled me deeply. Was I really ready for Shiva's dance? And in this morning presentation, we'll have the delight of Chung Liang, Al Wong, and I uh, dancing to Shiva. Because I think if we come out of this conference with the willingness to undertake the venture, to look directly at what is, setting aside our dramatic responses, just looking at what is, out of that will come very intuitively your next act and it will be the optimum act. That you can make. Edmund Burke said, What you do may seem insignificant, but it's very important that you do it. I'm sorry, he said, there's two lines I have. Well, that's Gandhi. Burke's line was, the worst mistake is to do nothing because you can only do a little as brother David in the group discussion last night talked about us trying to solve the problems at the level at which our minds are functioning rather than having relationship with the mystery of the universe and staying at the edge of the mystery of the universe with the unknown and still acting he said there are forces behind what one can see of which we are part when I find that somebody calls because they are sick or frightened and I am on the phone and I find myself feeling deeply peaceful and listening and feeling my heart responding to their pain and at the same moment, the equanimity of being with the mystery and watch the process happen between the two of us. I just feel that the two of us make up the beautiful, beautiful relationship between compassion, the giving and the receiving of the compassionate moment. And it's one thing and nobody's doing anything for anybody. It's a process and we are gathered here because we are part of the compassionate response. And it's interesting that the purer one's heart becomes, the more the tiniest act is that which resonates in an appropriate fashion to bring a deeper Harmony, a deeper way back into the Tao, as if one ever left it. These are the kinds of questions that Aldous's work awakens in me. He calls forth, just as he did in Jean, he calls forth in me the desire to be the pure instrument when one sees there is nothing left but purification and remembrance every time i forget i remember and of course every time i remember i forget until the forgetting and the remembering are all part of one thing ah forgetting ah remembering You and I are embarked on such an extraordinary dance, which is what Aldous was embarked on himself. Now, I've been reflecting about Aldous' life, and uh, Gene gave one interpretation. Aldous was a, um, he was often referred to as a dispassionate person. We also know he was very passionate about what he believed in, but he was a dispassionate person. Now, Ashley spoke last night about the, cold fish style that came out of the English educational system. So I've been entertaining whether Aldous's dispassion was a, a kind of caring cold fishness, a kind of, um, a kind of uh, the, the neurosis of a culture, the kind of fear of intimacy, the fear of a, a distancing himself. Was it reserve and psychological defense? Because that would be a reasonable argument who then in the course of his life was brought into a deep deep intimate relationship with the mystery and if that is the story of his life then it is an incredible hero's myth of somebody that starts out within the intellect and then tames the intellect until he is that wisdom heart out of which intellect speaks. And that is a hero's journey that any of us would love to emulate, to get out of being caught in our own minds. But I've entertained another speculation. I've considered the possibility that he's just a very old soul. He's sort of like an old llama who took birth in a certain culture with a certain style and that as his life went on, he was just looking through culture and then moving for the proper metier to express the wisdom he had all along and that first he did it within the that kind of um, Skeptical social satire with incredible erudition, his wit with its innocent mockery, his aesthetic sensitivity and moral charm, his basic kindness. In the 20s, this was Aldus, and this was the darling of the avant-garde of the intelligentsia of Europe. They couldn't wait for his next book. He said the problem with arts back then was that they disrupt the social systems. And all the avant-garde said, yay, viva l'art, viva the arts. But then what happened is, as all this started to go deeper into mysticism or look for a different way of forming or finding there were people that could hear a different route. He started to change. And many of the followers weren't ready to go with him because now he was ready to say that the arts might be a problem because they trapped one in dualism. Therefore he was suggesting that non-dualism was to be valued. And most people in the arts weren't ready to go that route. And so they started to refer to Aldous as a lay preacher with little to say, which he went on saying. Who, someone who had lost his genius into fuzzy, confused mysticism. I love it. I love what happens when you turn and you leave behind the mainstream. And once you have opened to the joy of sharing the unshareable, the endless delight of speaking the unspeakable, you do sound like a preacher saying it over and over again. But each time it's fresh because it's always pointing at the silence. So all this went through these uh, stages, perhaps as a, an old being finding his form, because he said, he said at one point, "I always knew of my inner being," and that reminded me of a beautiful, beautiful line from a wonderful, great saint in India, Ananda Maima. Extraordinary, extraordinary being. She had millions and millions of devotees. She was just a free, free spirit. And at one point she was meeting with Yogananda and Yogananda said to her, Ma, who are you? And she said, Father, before I was born, I was the same. And then I took birth and I was the same. And then my parents arranged for my marriage when I had grown and I was the same. And before you now, I am the same. And later, when I am in the halls of eternity, I shall be the same. That is the wisdom space, the space of timelessness, the space of spacelessness, the awareness, the Rigpa, the Brahman, the the space within which form dances. And it was, it seemed as if all this was in that space of awareness that was delighting in the forms arising, existing and passing away. The words I remember most in being with all this were extraordinary. Another one was how odd. And another one was curious. He I remember feeling like I was a sort of a butterfly on the end of a needle. That we were all sort of interesting exhibits in the museum of Aldous's perceptual universe.
1: <laughs>
2: and that quality of equanimity and delight. In the way the forms exist. So, at that point, if you can hear this possibility that the ending to Island and Brave New World are themselves just another part of the dance. And in all parts of the dance, your heart is breaking, and in all parts of the dance, there is joy. There's one more preface, sort of, that I like to talk about, about all this, about one of the provocative points. For many of us who grew up in a very um, coercive cultural context, conceptual structure about what was real. And then had the initiation of a psychedelic or trauma or some mystical experience that took us out of that. We saw in a moment how deeply, deeply enmeshed and trapped we had become in the cultural structure. I lived in the time when I was at Harvard before I took psilocybin. I lived in a time where I was a scientist and science was the high priest of the society. I lived in a time of philosophical materialism when God was seen as an anthropological curiosity. I lived at a time where the intellect was the ultimate arbiter of truth. And I was so sure of that and I transmitted that belief so vehemently that I was rewarded by the society again and again. I was a member of the team. And then I took this psilocybin and I realized I'd been had. (laughs) That the universe was infinitely richer than my petty conceptual structure. And everything my parents had said was just who they thought they were and how they thought it was and what they thought I was. I had bought what they thought I was. That's who I thought I was with a various set of neuroses I picked up in addition to the ones they gave me along the way. Because I grew up in what all this refers to as the telephone booth of single-family dwelling. (laughs) Locked in a telephone booth with two to three other people for 14 to 20 years. It's interesting, when I was growing up, a divorce was a no-no. And later, when my friends started to divorce, I had all the no-no in me. We've got to get back to the single family unit. And then I noticed that some of my friends divorced and then they remarried and then all four of the parents became friends and the kids had two families to go to and I realized I was jealous of the kids. Up until then, I was feeling sorry for them. They're children of a divorced family, how terrible. And suddenly I saw the space that they had. And so I then I think about Aldous's mutual adoption clubs in Ireland. And I saw how he took that idea and spread it into the extended family in which there is a support system of love and identity and looseness and space to play one neurosis off against the other. Now, I've asked myself, it was so hard in 1961 for me to break out of that model because it was trained in me so heavily. What conditions would I change in the education and caring for a new being into the species to make it possible for that moment of transition to occur more easily, to be able to be integrated more into the, the wisdom world, for me to be integrated more. Because the experience I had with the psychedelics was a violent, discontinuous moment from where I had been looking at the universe, which then became a subsystem. and in a way all of our work in thinking about the development of the child and this is what all this was deeply involved in, in this work was an attempt to find the way in which a child passes through the phase of necessary dualism that is a proper preparation for them to once again entertain non-dualism to ultimately integrate the two. Because for a child to learn the terrain, there seems to be the requirement that they become somebody before they can become nobody being somebody. Although they start out in that spaciousness, but then as Aldous points out in Island, The dualism is necessary for the socialization process to work. So I look at all of this in terms of how would a culture prepare people to be able to have commerce with the mystery to balance the life of their expectations and hopes and desires and fears and suffering and all that of the world of form or how to integrate formless and form. Just to give you a little feeling of the darkness of the vision of Brave New World. And the reason it's important and the way in which Brave New World is provocative to me is because so many things have crept up on me in our culture that I would hardly notice were it not for a presentation of such a dark mirror as Brave New World against which to look and see this. There are so many ways in which television, technology, transportation, ecological shifts, all of them have come. They're so, they've blended into the terrain so much. Advertising, I hardly notice. And then I read Brave New World And it's and I say when I look at the Brave New World, I say it couldn't happen now. And then I look and it has happened. It has happened. Or it's happening. In Brave New World, the story opens in which you are at the hatchery. Because the concept of mother is now an obscene term. We don't need mothers because we have given fertile women six-month bonus in their money, salary, to donate their ovaries to the state. And these ovaries we keep in a hatchery where we can speed up the process of them producing eggs. And then as the eggs are produced and fertilized, the eggs enter into a process of gestation during which they are treated in assembly lines in various ways, according to Bakunovsky's process. And the babies are decanted, they're not born. And the extraordinary social engineering, and you've got to hear that this comes out of the natural following of Ford's creation of the assembly line and the realization that now we can control nature in the sense of the movement of materials and the only chaotic element in that is the human individuals that have to push the buttons and change them because they may get unhappy at their jobs or something. So we have to socially engineer them to play their parts, so we have perfect production machines. Because the children, the purpose of the children in Brave New World is for production and consumption. It is an economic model of reality. It is for an efficient and stable society in which the individual has been sacrificed into the society.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the foundation and for Ramdas's work and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to ramdas.org and click on the donate now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What do you need to get off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, develop positive coping skills, and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/Ramdos today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot slash Ramdos.